Greeny with Mike Greenberg, the podcast. Presented by Progressive Insurance with our guests on the Goodyear Hotline. And so glad you've chosen to hang out with us here today. We opened with uh, a, a variety of thoughts on the events of yesterday. And then we have moved on subsequently to talk about the more um, normal issues in the world of sports. Because that is what always been my assumption that you come here for. And, and so if you'd like to hear my thoughts, which I had, or the thoughts of Omar Jimenez from CNN you can see them anytime on ESPN Plus, where we stream every day. You can listen to them on our podcast later today. In the meantime, back to the conversation again. There's really no reasonable way to to segue from something important to something as ridiculous as this conversation that we've had over the course of the last two days. But it is what it is. I came up with this idea that I think there are some teams that are so good in sports, like the Dodgers this year, that they could actually carry me. I could be on that team and they could still win. Not just carry you, play you. Play me. Every game. No, that's the point. I don't mean that I'd be on the roster. I'm going to, in every single game, they'd still win the World Series. And then we talked about the 85 Bears, and, and it just sort of, to set up again, everyone got, Hembo got into the question of, could I catch a pass in an NFL game? To which the answer is yes. Could I take a hit in an NFL game? The answer to that one is definitively no. And I will tell you a great story. I haven't told this story in years. So my first radio partner, long before I met Mike Golick, was a guy named Doug Buffon, who was a terrific linebacker for the Chicago Bears, played alongside Dick Butkus in the 60s. And then he went on to a, a long and very successful career in Chicago locally as just a local celebrity. He had steak in restaurants and all sorts of different things. And he did a ton of radio talk. And he and I sort of developed an excellent rapport, and we did shows together for a very long time. And actually, not to get sidetracked, but if you go back and listen to tapes of that, the, the, the seeds of what ultimately became my show with Mike really were sown there. That's where I learned how to do this stuff. But that's neither here nor there. He told me an unbelievable story. So when they made the movie Brian's Song, the original one with Billy D. Williams as Gail Sayers and James Kahn as uh, Brian Piccolo, that they used many of the actual Chicago Bears, including Dick Buckus and Doug Buffon, who was a linebacker. Um, they used them in the making of the movie. So he told me a story. So the, the, the idea here is they're going to run a few plays in which you know, Brian Piccolo was a running back. They're going to hand the ball off to James Conn. He's going to run into the middle of the line. He's going to get tackled. And all of the Bears are instructed, don't hit him. Whatever you do, don't hit him. You know, grab him. Th- do not hit him. And apparently James Kahn, this is in Doug's telling of it, James Kahn is getting up and he's like, no, I want you guys to hit me. Come on. I want to be a football player. I could take, I'm tough, whatever. He's, he's basically talking enough nonsense that finally, after seven, eight, nine takes, and James Kahn is like, oh, you guys can't hit me. I, whatever it is he's saying, and you know Jimmy Kahn. I mean, he sees, you know who he is. He's, he's, he's Sonny Corleone. So finally... Doug and some of the other defensive guys just can't take it anymore. And they make up their mind, on this play, we're going to level them. (laughs) So he takes a handoff in the making of the movie. The Bears defense hits him. Flat on his back, unconscious. Doesn't move. They think for a minute there, oh, we may have killed the actor James Conn. They had to, like, cart him off on a stretcher, and he was done for the day. They just hit him once, and he was 
obliterated, done. One tackle. Finished, one tackle. And, and, and again, this was Dick Butkus, so, I mean, one tackle from him is equal to, like, 100 from most people. But the point of the story is, your average human being, even James Conn, who's probably, a, at that time, he's a young man, probably in pretty good shape and a pretty tough human being, you get hit by a football player and you're not used to that, you're done. I mean, just, you can't, it can't be done. So there's no question I couldn't take that. In fact, football, you have just vaulted football to the bottom of my list of sports I would like to try and play because of the potential for something like that You're not like taking a bubble happen. screen. You're no, not taking no. a bubble screen. I think I'm taking, I think the Dodgers or the Warriors with KD no. are the teams I could win a championship with. Not in basketball. With. Yes, in basketball. Not in basketball. It's not happening. With KD, Steph, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and me, we win the championship. You go 0 82. No, the we would not. Go 0 82. We would not With go 0 82. Are you kidding? It's all these teams that are constantly resting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is that at some point I might actually be one of the best options they have. <laughs> With all of the rest these guys are taking. All right, McGreeny with you here, presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. Let's move. I'm sorry, what? What? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? Well, I got a couple of I'm sorry, what's for you today. The first of them is from Max. So my buddy Max Kellerman, I just played you a few minutes ago, if you were not with us, uh, he actually asked Dave Roberts, the manager of the Dodgers, about my ridiculous premise of whether or not he could absorb me into his lineup every day and still win, because Max is just that kind of guy. He's a great guy. I've known him for, we grew up, we, we, Max and I grew up a five-minute walk from each other, and we have the same birthday. I've known Max pretty much my entire but life. But you're much older, right? I'm not much older. I'm a few years a older. A few years. Okay, my I'm bad. not much, you said right. that. I'm much older well, than you. I'm not much older than Well, Max. you're also much older than Bob Costas. I know in your perception I'm older than Bob. Let me put it this way. Bob Costas is more older than me than I am than Max, just to be clear, okay? okay? The age gap between Bob and me is greater than the age gap between Max and me. But that neither here nor there. So Max on first take yesterday, Max is a giant fan all his life. Max on, his, on first take yesterday was talking about what he thinks the Giants should do in this draft. I've seen mock drafts recently where Trey Lance is going ninth. If Trey Lance is sitting there at nine and you're at 11 and you could move up a couple of slots and snag a guy who has potentially greatness in him, potentially, but who needs some time. You know, if you draft a Trey Lance, you don't come in and start him right away. So you can still see what you have in Daniel Jones. And if you have something great, well, then great. But if you don't and you look and you go, he's okay. I'd like a little more. You got your guy. So that got a lot of attention yesterday, a lot of reaction. We have two giant fans on this show. So before I give you my opinion, let me get theirs. Nuno, you, thumbs up or thumbs down on moving up a couple spots if he falls there and the Giants taking Trey Lance? It's a ridiculous thought. It's a ridiculous <laughs> thought, says Nuno. Devin, who, speaking of ridiculous thoughts, what is your take on this? Big thumbs down on that one. Thumbs down. I'm going to tell you both right now that you are absolutely, positively, 100% wrong. Whoa. Now, the Giants will not do this because the same person who drafted Daniel Jones would be making this move, and it would be an acknowledgement, which he is clearly unwilling to make, that there is some question about whether Daniel Jones is or is not the goods long term. But the reality is, if you have watched Daniel Jones play the last two years, and I have, if you tell me that you can look me in the face and say with certainty that Daniel Jones is going to be the quarterback of your team for the next five years, I'm going to call you out. You just can't. You just don't know that. I'm not even sure you think that. 
in an honest moment. Now, I like Daniel Jones. I liked him in college. I liked him way more coming into the draft than most people did. And I haven't given up on him by any means. But in no way can we sit here and say, oh, well, the Giants have their quarterback of the future. They've worked like hell to try and figure out some way to make it work. They're getting offensive linemen. They're spending money on wide receivers. They've got Barkley. Barkley predates him, obviously, so they didn't draft Barkley for him. But one way or another, the Giants are moving heaven and earth to try to justify the pick of Daniel Jones, which, again, may wind up being easily justifiable. He might be terrific. I hope he is. Seems like a nice guy. I've, I, I'm rooting for him. I don't, I've, I'm, I'm not one of these Jet fans who hates the Giants. I, I like the Giants. I'd like to see him be successful. But I watch every game. At no point have I thought while I'm watching him, oh, this guy's got, he's special. Like most young quarterbacks who turn out to be great, you can see little bits of it early on. Now, what Daniel Jones is, I think, is a little more athletic than maybe most people realized coming in. But what he is not, so at minimum, what he is not is someone who has shown you he's your guy. Done. So if you think Trey Lance has the potential to be a superstar, which I'm here to tell you lots of people do. I'm not telling you I know he does because I don't know that. I've never seen a game he actually played in his life. I've watched a ton of tape now, and I have talked to Mel and McShay and Booger and and, uh, Lewis Riddick and a ton of people. There is so much about that kid to like. Some people think that when all is said and done, he'll be the best quarterback in this draft. He's like Josh Allen-esque. So if you don't feel certain that Daniel Jones is your guy and you can take this guy, I don't think it's a crazy idea at all. All things being equal, Greeny, for the next three years, who would you rather have play quarterback for you, Daniel Jones or Sam Darnold? I would take Darnold. Mm. In a straight-up trade, right now, if, if, well, he's not on the Jets anymore. If the Giants offered Carolina Daniel Jones straight up for Sam Darnold, who doesn't do it? I'll answer your question right now. Carolina doesn't do it. Now, we know the Giants don't do it either. I mean, in fairness to them, they selected Saquon Barkley instead of Sam Darnold. So they've already demonstrated through their actions that they didn't believe in Darnold either. I'm not here to tell them they're wrong. I can't defend Darnold to the hilt. But I saw far more things in Mm -hmm. Darnold over his three years in New York that suggested there's something special in there than I've seen from Daniel Jones in two years. That's all I'm saying. So all I'm saying on behalf of my friend Max, as everyone likes to just go crazy about these takes, is that what he's saying happens to make sense. Coming up next, the green list is all about the number one, number one picks. That's next. This is Greeny on ESPN Radio. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. 
Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Greeny, the podcast. All right, Greeny with you, as always, live from the Seaport District at Pier 17, brought to you by Chase. Green list, the number one, number one picks of all time, or at least of the last 20 years, coming up in just a moment. But first, I've been called out by my producer, and I'm firing back at him. Here we go. Hashtag Nuno, jump back on a microphone. You were a fan of the New York Giants. And when I went to a break, you told me that my position on the drafting of, of Trey Lance supporting my friend and my very intelligent friend Max Kellerman's position was ludicrous. It was crazy. It was all the different things. Yep. Yep. So I'm going to ask you to put your money where your mouth is right now, Nuno. Here it comes. Would you be willing to bet an amount of money that mattered to you right now that at the end of next season, the New York Giants will pick up the fifth-year option on Daniel Jones, yes or no? Yes. You would. You would be willing to bet an amount of money that mattered to you that that will happen. Correct. You're a brave man. Will happen or should happen? No, no. Will happen. I, I think there's enough good that you've seen with Daniel Jones that with uh, Joe Judge and this new – you know, with this new regime coaching like that, you'll see the best out of them as long as Dave Gettleman doesn't screw up this draft. Well, I mean, that's a big I mean, as long have, as. I gotta, right? I gotta have a caveat here, right? Like, I, I believe no, Dev, Devin yes, would like to Devin enter the wants chat because he's too. upset too. I have a quote from Mel Kiper Jr. Yes, Devin. In February. Yes. I think Daniel Jones is a better quarterback in this draft than everybody except Trevor Lawrence. So when we're talking about oh! when we're talking about them drafting someone, why would they draft someone that's not as good as him? So so Mel said because he had, he had said the same of Darnold. He said he he believes Daniel Jones is a better prospect than any of the quarterbacks in this draft besides Trevor Lawrence. Yep, and then he said you know Zach Wilson and then Justin Fields after that. So, so, so we live in a. I'm very glad you brought that up, Devin. Look, we live in a time where we are artificially pushing these quarterbacks up this board. Right, These quarterbacks are going to go one, two, three, maybe four. Five of them are going in the first eight or nine picks. And everyone who pays attention to this stuff is saying they're not that good. They're not as good as guys that are already in the league, but teams can't wait to restart their rookie salary cap. That's what it's about. And the interest of having their quarterbacks cheap, they're willing to run the risk, at least, of downgrading how good they are. All right, Nuno, you're a man of your word. I like it. I give you respect. Meanwhile, green list. The list is what determines who matters in this business. The green list. All right, so at a time where number one picks, and and all these first-rounders tend to be quarterbacks, we sat down and looked at a little bit, and we have put together, taking this in the 2000s, so in this millennium, looking back at all the quarterbacks who went number one overall, who are the best? And I just want to mention for the sake of discussion that I am taking out of the conversation Joe Burrow and Kyler Murray because it's just too soon. There's no way to evaluate them whose careers are just beginning against everybody else. So they don't count for the purposes of this. I'm not putting them on the list. Number five. Number five is Matthew Stafford, who is currently 16th all-time in career passing yards and passing touchdowns. He was the fastest player ever to 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, and 45,000 career passing yards. He played for a Detroit Lions team. I'm going to make up a stat now, but I think you'll understand what I mean. In the 12 years he was there, I think they had a 100-yard rusher three times. And I, and I know that that's an exaggeration, but not that much of one. No team has been more 
pathetically dependent on any one player than they were all that time on Stafford. So the, the question on Stafford is, is he a good player or is he a great player on terrible teams? I firmly believe he is the latter, and I think he will prove it in L.A. I put him at number five on the list. Number four. Number four, I put Michael Vick. Michael Vick led the Falcons to the 2004 NFC Championship game. He was then the 2010 Comeback Player of the Year in Philadelphia. He was the first quarterback ever to run for over 1,000 yards in a season. He has the all-time record for most rushing yards by a quarterback at over 6,100 yards. Lamar Jackson will shatter that at some point soon. But Vick changed the game, changed the sport in so many different ways, and certainly belongs on this list at number four. Number three. Cam Newton is three. He was the rookie of the year the year he came in. He was the MVP of the league in 2015. And, of course, he led his team to a Super Bowl. I really struggled over the decision between Cam Newton and Andrew Luck. I knew one of them would be three and the other one would be two. Cam Newton, I think, in the big picture, accomplished more. And, of course, is still playing. Accomplished more than Luck. But if you're asking me, number two, which was the better player, I think I would go Luck. Luck was the rookie, was actually not the rookie of the year the year he came in. Robert Griffin was. But Andrew Luck took over a team that was 2-14 and 14 the year before and led them to the playoffs, not throwing little dink and dunk screens. They had him throwing the ball down the field like he was a five-year veteran as a rookie. And I'm here to tell you, the primary reason I'm putting Luck as high on this list as I am, in fact, I would put him number one based on this, is that if he had not been in the situation he was in, not only would he still be playing, but I believe he'd be trending towards being one of the best quarterbacks ever. I think he was that good. The problem is the teams he was playing on were so ill-constructed. The prior general manager, before they got the new guy in there, Ballard, who was so good, was so bad. The hits that Andrew Luck took were difficult to watch. They ruined his career. The Colts ruined his career. He, he retired at an age that nobody retires when they're quarterbacks because quarterbacks get protected, but he didn't. They didn't protect him, and at some point he just couldn't take it anymore. But the reason I put him higher than Cam and as high on this list as I do is because I think if his career hadn't been ended prematurely, not by injury, but just by ineptitude and frustration, I actually think he would have been number one. Number one. On this list. But number one has to be Eli. I mean... He's a two-time Super Bowl champion. He's a two-time Super Bowl MVP. He's eighth all-time in passing yards. He has the Ironman streak of the 210 consecutive games, which was only broken up by the ludicrousness of that decision that was involving Geno Smith at one time. And I think he is actually, in my opinion, underappreciated. There are so many people who love to take shots at Eli, question whether he should even be in the Hall of Fame or anything else. Come on. Be ridiculous. Eli Manning is walking into the Hall of Fame and absolutely deserves to. And so that is today's Green List. The top five number ones who were quarterbacks in this millennium. Matthew Stafford, five. Michael Vick, four. Cam Newton, three. Andrew Luck, two. And Eli Manning, number one. On the way, one of the best players in the history of his sport says he doesn't like the game anymore. You'll hear who and why after this from 1-800-Flowers.com. Look, this Mother's Day, lock in your place as the golden child by ordering mom's bouquet early from 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now at 1-800-Flowers, you can get 36 sorbet roses, gorgeous, for just $36. Every bouquet has an impressive mix of pastel shades. They're pink, orange, lavender, gorgeous. Show all the moms in your life just how much you love them by ordering today from the official florist of Mother's Day. And here's how you do it. 
to order 36 sorbet roses for just $36, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, enter Greeny as the code. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, enter the code Greeny, and hurry, the offer expires Friday. This is ESPN Radio. Greeny, the podcast. I do like this song. Greeny with you on ESPN Radio. We're presented by Progressive Insurance and our guest on the Goodyear Hotline. So I told you that one of the great players in the history of his sport has said he doesn't like the game anymore. That player is Gary Sheffield. Did you see these quotes, Embo? I did. So Gary Sheffield was on CBS Sports Radio with, with Tiki Barber and Brandon Tierney. And he said, quote, I don't watch baseball at all. Now, those of you who don't know Gary, Gary was a nine-time All-Star. He won a World Series. He was in the studio with TBS up until recently, wasn't he? As recently as last year. As recently as last year. And he went on to say, I was kind of forced to watch because I was working with TBS, so I had to remember, really find out who were the players. I'll tell you the secret now. I never watch the games during the season. This is the first time I've said that out loud, but I'm just truly disappointed with what I watch. He went on to say they've implemented all these rules now and they've changed the game so much they're making it more hitter-friendly even without having success. These guys can go out there and strike out 180, 190 times and it's okay. Then all of a sudden they show a home run. Now a home run is less appealing. When a home run was a big deal and more appealing, it wasn't happening as often as it is now. When I see a pop-up player that everyone gravitates to, he has 100 strikeouts in April. When I see stuff like that, I'm not one of those older players that scoffs at the game. I just speak on facts. That's the way the game is played today, and it doesn't mean I have to watch it. So that's Gary Sheffield. So I don't know Gary, um, and and the first first thought I have, look, he's still working in the sport. He's still doing well in in that regard. So it doesn't seem to me, and Hembo, again, you would know that I don't. There's no axe to grind here, right? Like, he's not... He's not someone like Jose Canseco, to take it to the ultimate extreme, was a person who had basically been banished from baseball and thus had an axe to grind when he wrote the steroid book. I'm not comparing the two. But in him coming out and saying that, when you got a guy who was like a borderline Hall of Fame caliber player saying, I hate the sport now, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. The only axe to grind he would have would be the Hall of Fame thing, but that's not at all what he's talking about here. And this, right. is, this is a player, he's, he was, he's like about 50 years old. He's not an old player. I remember one time on Mike and Mike, you had Oscar, Oscar uh, Robertson came on, and you were talking to him about basketball, old basketball, and he was you know, complaining almost how easy it was to get a triple-double today. Right. This is not that. Gary Sheffield's a much younger person, but Gary Sheffield's also a person who hit 500 home runs in the big leagues with more walks than strikeouts. So the game is unrecognizable to him, and he hasn't even been out of it for that long. All right, I want to ask Buster only about this. Nuno, get Buster on the phone. We we need to get Buster in on this because I I find this fascinating, and I want to – I just sort of want to get into a little more of a roundtable-esque kind of discussion here than we can because, Hembo, this – how would you quantify the level of concern that something like this should have? If you're the commissioner's office and you've hired Theo Epstein and you're trying to figure out ways that you can try and make the game more, more, I was about to use palatable. That's not the word I mean. Um, you know, more exciting and entertaining for fans. Early returns are good. I mean, the numbers that I've Very. seen from this early first mm-hmm. month of the season, the television ratings have been good. You can't read anything into attendance figures right now because right. people aren't allowed to go to these games and baseball has often been driven 
our perception of it has been driven by attendance figures. I remember Bud Selig telling me years ago, years and years ago on Mike and Mike, when I asked him, what is the first thing you look at every single morning? Immediately, he said, the attendance, hmm. everywhere. He would look at the attendance in every ballpark. That's not applicable right now. But from what we can glean, like the TV ratings are good. So now right. to have a guy like Sheffield come out and be this direct, this blunt about saying, look, the game stinks now. <laughs> I got to think that's going to rub some people the wrong way. It definitely will. And here's what concerns me. So people talk a lot about how baseball does not do a good enough job at bringing in young fans, right? The game moves too slowly. It's not conducive to attention spans of people younger than me even. Gary Sheffield's in his early 50s, and if people of that age are saying, this game is so unrecognizable to me because it's not what I grew up loving, that I don't like watching it anymore either, there's really no needle to thread. Like That's, that's a really bad dynamic for baseball to have because what baseball does have going for it, or at least... Uh, has historically had going for it is that old people liked watching it and let's hope that remains the case without you know um, uh, getting to a point where you have young people that don't like watching the game and then who knows people Sheffield's age or older complaining about things like this I think it's going to become a more common refrain let me bring Robert Stanberry only the third into this conversation we affectionately call him Buster Um, and there's no one I lean on more besides maybe Hembo than Buster for insight into these things. So, Buster, I I was struck by this. You know, I I was – it just seemed to me that in the absence of some sort of axe to grind, which we don't know Gary Sheffield to have, there's a pretty harsh critique from someone who has to know that that – look, if you're just being honest, that's fine. I'm not – I'm never going to sit here and criticize a person for giving you their honest opinion – um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruffle some feathers, I would think. What was your reaction to that, Buster? It's not going to ruffle feathers of people within the game, Grainy, because I hear the same thing off the record mm. constantly, and I've been hearing it for the last couple of years where people in the sport are saying this is becoming uh, more and more difficult to watch with the three true outcomes. Uh, there's no question about it. The people around the sport are concerned. When Theo Epstein stepped down, Uh, as head of baseball operations for the Cubs last fall, he talked about this, about how the chasing of the analytics has led the game to this point. Uh, And it's part of the reason why I think he joined Major League Baseball in an effort to try to reverse some of these trends that Gary Sheffield was talking about. He's kind of like Dr. Frankenstein, isn't he, Theo? Because (laughs) he wasn't he at the vanguard of all of this in the first place? Like, the, the the monster that he's now trying to tame, didn't he sort of create it, Buster? He helped to create it. There's no question. You know, part of the reason why the Red Sox finally broke through and won the World Series in 2004 was because Theo brought analytics to that organization that they in a way that they hadn't before. And they identified players like David Ortiz, you know, through the use of those analytics. But now uh, Theo and so many people around the sport are concerned about how they've gotten to this point where everything is matchup-based. We see a thousand nameless, faceless relievers, it seems like, uh, that can't necessarily inspire fans. People in the sport are really concerned. All right. Here's what I'm going to do, Buster. I'm going to present. I don't just bring up problems. Let's fix baseball. I'm going to present a solution. Mine is that sort of rare genius that will not be fully appreciated until long Long after after it's time. The genius, you said? Your genius. He's genius, eh? We're not going to appreciate your brilliance until you're gone. Brilliant. Baseball needs saving, and I'm just the man to save it. You ready for this, Buster? Do you know what the answer to baseball's problem is? Are you ready? What is it? I'm ready. It's me. It's me. I came up with this idea yesterday. I presented on this program yesterday that the Los Angeles Dodgers are so good 
that if I won the lottery and bought them and mandated that I had to play every day, they could put me wherever they want, they could bat me wherever they want, they could put me wherever they want in the field, but that I have to be on the team and, and a part of the game every single day that they would still win the World Series. Buster, your reaction. <laughs> first off, I would absolutely want to uh, to pay to, to watch that the first day at the very least. And I can tell you that like an intervention is needed to rescue you from this fantasy. I'm telling you, if that happened, you would have Dodger players, position players, demanding to be traded because of your presence in the lineup, okay? And because they would say that, said, no, opposing managers – pitchers, catchers, they would all be so excited to have your presence in the lineup because you would never get a hit in 600 plate appearances. You would never contribute anything positive for the Dodgers. Okay, so now let's let's unpack that for just a moment here, okay? <laughs> anything positive is pretty strong. A, I've got a dynamic personality and I'm fun to be around, but more importantly, <laughs> B, let's get to, let's get to the ways I can contribute. Here's the first. No double plays. Right, I'm not hitting into a double play the whole year. You got to put the ball in play to get double. So no double plays. Right, the three true outcomes. My three true outcomes are strike one, strike two, and strike three. So there will be no double play. That's first. But wait a minute. How often do pitchers walk? About three percent of the time. So if I got 600 plate appearances, Buster, I would suggest I'm going to walk 18 times. What do you think? I think that number is extremely high. I think, uh, you know, part of the reason why uh, pitchers will walk other pitchers is, uh, in part, there's a little bit of a threat. There would be no threat with you. Absolutely no threat. Can you imagine the defensive shift that would be used against you? There would be seven defenders within 100 feet of home plate. You wouldn't sniff a hit. You wouldn't sniff a walk. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. They would shift you. I had not considered that. Let's start with that. Hembo then brought up, so if we're going to actually dive into this in a serious way, Mm. Hembo then brought up that my presence in the lineup, in theory at number nine, I'm assuming that's where they're going to hit me, is going to impact like seven and eight also because they're going to walk. If there's two outs, they're going to walk everybody in front of me Yep. (laughs) in order to pitch to me. So it's not just my spot in the order that I'm going to impact. That's going to have an enormous drag on the overall ball club as well. Buster. Hence all the trade demands from the players who would be batting in front of you. Because starting in about the number four spot, the opposing pitcher would be like, yeah, you know what? If there's any problem in this half inning, I'm just going to walk, guys, because I know I have an automatic out in Greeny. Could I lay down a bunt? In your opinion, Buster, would I have any chance of successfully bunting? It is possible that you could actually get a bun on the ground and you would be thrown out by the time you're about 40 feet up the line. <laughs> I'd be thrown out, but I might be able to move a runner over. That's my point. Like, that's a productive out. Anthony Rizzo would be four feet from home plate as you squared <laughs> the right. bunt and would get the force play immediately. Every, if you got uh, one down, it would be a double play. Like, your job is yes, to make every only that time. one out. <laughs> I need to only be responsible for one out per plate appearance. Okay, so that's that's the offensive side of it, Buster. Now let's get to the defensive side of it. Where would we put me? Where am I playing? If I, if I have to play one, obviously I'm not pitching and I'm not catching. So that leaves seven spots on the field that I can play. Where are we putting me? They would position you by the foul pole and say, stay out of the way, please. The Dodgers would rather have Moogie Betts and Cody Bellinger covering the rest of the outfield and you 
all by yourself. I heard you talking about this yesterday, and I was thinking, my God, if one of the, one of these 110 knuckling line drives went in greeny, he would quit right there. Hmm. That's what Hembo said, too. Now, let me. He, he said that I would be straddling, that I would be actually standing in left field with one foot in fair territory <laughs> and the other foot in foul territory. Now, let me pose to you the following. If I were to play more of a standard left field, you know, like an old, like, like a Roy White kind of left field, and, and I, so, but, but I would have positioned myself right on the, uh, the warning track, at the front of the warning track, so nothing is getting behind me. Anything that gets over my head is a home Are run. Are we sure, though? Well, <laughs> I mean... We, can you cover I, the warning track? How far? I, 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 the, the warning track is, what, like 10 feet long? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can run back 10 feet. <laughs> if the ball is hit over my head, it's going to be a home run, most likely. <laughs> And I, what, what I could do in that situation, Buster, I think, is retrieve base hits. So if, there, if, if a ball is hit, like, past the shortstop, I think I can run forward, scoop that, and throw it to second base successfully. So, I mean, I'm serving a purpose, which will keep Mookie Betts from having to play, like, literally in left field. And, and I, I think I could handle at least part of that. Uh, no. First off, you'd be thrown into third base every time because any ball would be hit to you. It would be an automatic double, okay? And you remember what was played uh, on the organ the night, when Knight Carlton hit that game-winning home run in the 1975 World Series? Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, that's what they would play with the organ at Dodger Stadium because actually fielded a ball without gaffing it. Okay, let's make this – let me just ask you an, an honest, serious question. Yes. If I were to play some semblance of left field, how many fly balls are hit to left in an average season? To a le- how many how many plays does a left fielder make in, in an average season? It's 162 games. Two or three per game. Okay, so let's say 350 chances. Sure. 400 balls are hit to. I'm just making up a number now. It doesn't really matter. Let's say there are 400 routine can of corn fly balls hit to left field, and I'm the left fielder. Out of those 400, Buster, how many do I catch? First off, eliminate the word routine since you would be involved, okay? But I, I would say fairly if the ball is just sort of lofted in the air, and I'd give you credit for like 80 of them. No 80 way. out of 400. Buster, there is no chance he's catching 80 out of 400 major league fly balls. Are you no. kidding? He, he No, he just described it as sort of like these can of corn. He's got time to settle. And I know Greeny well enough to know that he's, he would have anxiety. He'd be out there for three hours before every game practicing fly ball. That would only hurt matters. <laughs> shagging. I'm shagging. Yeah, uh, shagging and, 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 and so here, here's my question. Uh, here, here's where I think my biggest problem would fall, Buster. When I was in Sarasota with Michael Jordan in 1994, he was playing the outfield for the, the, the well, there were major league games. He was Birmingham actually playing. Right. He was, no, he wasn't or, in yeah. Birmingham yet, though. This was, he was still okay. playing for the White Sox. He played in major league uh, spring training games before they sent him, they, they assigned him to double A. So that's when I was there. So I would sit in the press box, which in these little ballparks in, in Florida, Buster, you probably know them like the back of your hand. At least all the ones I can remember were right behind home plate. So I, I have a perfect view of, of a ball as it is hit. And what I learned from that experience is how extraordinary Major League Baseball outfielders are 
that on the crack of the bat, they are immediately running to the right place. And I, I would never have noticed that if it weren't for the fact that I made the observation that Michael never was. That was the observation I made was that the, the crack of the bat, and he would always take two steps in the wrong direction before he'd start running in the right direction. And that would be my biggest concern, Buster, is that you got to read it right off the bat. And I feel like I might struggle with that a little. You would be brutal. Uh, you would always take the wrong step. Let's face it, it would come down to the Dodgers coach's positioning of you and whether or not a ball was hit directly at you to have a chance. Okay. So the final question I have for you, Buster, is this. I, I used the Dodgers because I was thinking to myself, in all of sports today, they are the most dominant team, which is to say they are by a greater margin the best team in their sport right now than anyone else is in any other sport, basketball, football, whatever else you want to make. If I were to have, if you could put me on any team in sports history and say that team would still win the championship, if I had to play some role in every game, could I do it? So, like I brought up, or, or Devin actually brought up, the, the, the Golden State Warriors teams that had Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson. If the fifth man on the floor was me, would we still have won the title? No chance. You would sabotage their chances. It, the more, and I heard you talk about this yesterday, so I agree with your theory that the more people involved, the better the odds are of success. I agree that the, the 85 Bears, they could have put you at the deepest safety, told you don't even bother, just stand over there, and the rest of the other 10 of us will take care of it. Okay. Uh, and then the other option I had I thought would be I could have been a wide receiver on the 85 Bears who are the greatest defense of all time. I've jokingly said, oh, I'm not even that jokingly, they could have punted on first down all season and still gone 8-8. Eight and eight. If I'm out there, just put me out wide of the hash, play 10 on 11, they would have scored some points, and their defense would have done the rest. Right, I got a little news here I want to get to. Buster, thank you for jumping in, my friend. It is always a pleasure, and thanks for having a little fun with this. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Granny. All right, we'll see you later. This one is interesting, actually. As, as we were talking, um, Bubba just said in my ear, check Adam Schefter's Twitter feed, and I will. And I think this is worth noting. I turned to my Eagle fan friend, Mr. Hembo, and this is from Adam Schefter's Twitter feed. Eagles head coach Nick Sirianni declined today to name Jalen Hurts as starting quarterback and instead said it will be an open competition. Now, they have signed Joe Flacco, so he's there as well. What is your reaction to that, Hembo? My reaction to that is, I guess I'm not that surprised. He's a second-year player. He's not proven hardly anything. It's a first-year head coach. My guess is that this is some sort of motivational tool, or perhaps maybe Nick Sirianni just isn't sold. Joe Flacco is not that old of a player. Maybe he's got something left in the tank. But I think what Philadelphia fans are desperately hoping for this year is that Jalen Hurts can be the you know sort of a franchise quarterback, and you have him on his rookie deal for the second half of it, which is best-case scenario. This isn't really starting off on the right foot, but I wouldn't read too much into it. If you traded away Carson Wentz, and Joe Flacco winds up being your quarterback this coming season. Disaster. That's going to look so unimaginably bad, I can't put it into words. All right, this was a terrific day. It's nice to have a laugh along the way. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, and we'll see you back in Better Than Ever tomorrow on ESPN Radio. Thanks for listening to Greeny, the podcast. You can check out Greeny live weekdays at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN+. Plus. Also, don't miss Greeny on Get Up, weekday mornings at 8 Eastern on ESPN. This is Greeny, the podcast.